listening to Queering Desi. This is your host, Priya. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Sasha, who is the organizing director at the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance. I've known Sasha for a long time through our activist circles, and I've always admired their spirit and their passion when it comes to creating space for queer and trans people of color. So I was really excited to talk to Sasha about their organizing journey, what it takes to build community, and how to take care of yourself as an organizer, as an activist, and as a queer person of color. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to Queering Desi, and thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me. So you are an amazing organizer, both with NCAPIA, the National Queer Asian Pacific Islander Alliance, but also just in general life we met many years ago. But I'm so excited to talk to you today just about your journey and organizing in general and how the community can respond to all of the things that happen in the world and, and how we can be empowered as a community. Cool. I, that's a lot to cover. I'm excited to delve in and I'm excited to have this conversation with you. It's nice to have, have this kind of talk with someone that I've known for a while, yes. even if we haven't seen each other in a minute. Yes, definitely. I think, yeah, you're right. It's, it is a lot to cover and maybe that's ambitious, but I'd love to give people just a sense of not only what you do and what your journey has been like, but also, you know, just the community at large, like how, how can we heal? How can we hold space for each other? Um, just to kind of start that conversation, you know? Yeah, that sounds great. If you just want to start with telling us a little bit about, you know, your journey and what is it that drew you to organizing in the first place? So my name is Sasha. I use they, them pronouns. And yeah, I think the first thing that I really got politicized around was gender as a young person, uh, as a very young person. And that was both, I think, around seeing some of the ways that patriarchy or that gender was playing out in my family, in my community you know, everywhere from in the classroom to in the playground to in the kitchen, and also feeling this sense that I didn't have words for until much later in life, but that these two kind of classifications around gender definitely couldn't be everything and sort of feeling like neither one of those is really able to hold me without having any of the words for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And later on, I... In high school, I started to realize that I that I was queer, so I would have used different words at the time, and yeah, really saw that there was a lack of resources, that there was a lack of knowledge in my peers, and in, even from school staff, or maybe especially from school staff, yeah. and started to organize through what was essentially a, a GSA or Gay Straight Alliance on campus, so we called it something else. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, I think, another really formative moment. And then I, I went to college around Philly and got involved with a group called Hot Pot. And I think that was probably my first real political home mm -hmm. and was absolutely what pulled me into this work in a way that I just couldn't turn back from. And part of that was around really struggling with what it meant to be queer in my own family and having a community of queer and trans API folks that could actually understand that and, and understand why I couldn't just turn around and walk away, right. which is what a lot of other people, particularly white folks, were telling me to do. Mm -hmm. And that was really working around immigration reform, both locally by, by sort of bringing different voices in locally and also thinking about some of the national conversations that were happening and policies that were being proposed and really wanting as queer and trans folks, like seeing the need for, for us to be doing this work. Um, to change the conversation around asylum, to change the conversation around borders and immigration, and to also bring more queer and trans folks into this into this work. 
And I think, you know, I didn't stay in Philly for that long, but Hot Pot really helped to shape a lot of that in me. And I remain really grateful to the people who who were really key in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the best part of being part of this like activist community for me, even like years ago, just joining and seeing how many organizations like locally were doing the work, you know, putting in the grassroots, like organizing, but also just visibility, you know, as for myself, I'll say like, as a as realizing now that I'm a queer person, but again, like you said, a, a different word maybe at the time, you know, wanting to see black and brown folks like myself that that identified as queer or trans or whatever it was that they identified as, but knowing that we existed and knowing that we had the power to come together and create that kind of community for ourselves before even the step of like going out there and advocating for ourselves as well. Yeah, totally. And yeah, like exactly what you said, both but it was really important to see people and feel myself reflected and be able to have a community that could hold me. And it was really important to be able to move into organizing with, with these sort of different lenses. And so for example, like the conversation around marriage for folks that were thinking about immigration reform and immigrant rights as queer people was really different, right? Mm -hmm. Marriage wasn't the priority, but there was also a way that it made a tangible difference in whether or not someone could stay in the U S yeah, and so it never became like, oh, gay marriage is what we have to fight for. But there was this feeling of if this passes, or you know, for depending on where it passes, it can really transform people's lives who are trying to seek asylum, and and it might help their case, right? Or the yeah. different, yeah. There's just such a different conversation around it that came from queer and trans people of color actually bringing their lived experiences to the table, and so it was both around the visibility and the connection, but also the entry point into organizing and sort of seeing like. It is such a different movement when queer and trans folks are actually part of leading it. Right. Absolutely. What part do you think for you and your journey has like that cultural piece played into, right? You touched upon not having the language or the words, especially for family or community. You know, how how did that cultural part, you know, being from Sri Lankan descent or, or just South Asian in general, for you, how did that form part of your journey and part of your, you know, your fire to pursue organizing? Oh, such good questions. Um, <laughs> I think a piece of it was around having these really sort of guttural and and scary experiences with profiling both for myself and for other people and knowing that that had to be part of queer and trans work mm-hmm. um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, around all of these conversations around chosen family and knowing that for me, it didn't feel like an option to just have chosen family and then to leave the family that I was born into behind. Mm -hmm. And that felt like a really key cultural difference with a lot of sort of LGBT work that I was seeing or even things that I was being told. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that's true for everybody. I think there are people for whom like they don't want to bring or they can't, or for whatever reason, right? Families are abusive. Families can be terrible. And I don't think that everyone should have to bring their family along with them. And I also don't think that, that it's like, a, I don't want to be part of a queer and trans movement where I'm expected to check my family at the door if they don't immediately get it. Right. And that was sort of the biggest thing that I think Hot Pot gave me the space to really think about was both how to have spaces where I could be my full self and how to, how to have some of the tools to actually transform the spaces that I wasn't ready to leave, but that weren't quite ready for me either. Yeah, definitely. That's such a good point. I was talking on another episode with someone about how 
you know, being an activist and being out and open for all these years, I would go back to these spaces where where my family of origin or community of origins were that that they hadn't maybe progressed in the way that I progressed or, you know, come of age in a way that I had. And and it used to be really hard. You know, I used to resent that a little bit or I used to feel like I had to, like, cut stuff off or, you know, instead of actually being able or having the bandwidth or feeling safe to actually put in that work or or knowing that it was OK, that, you know, they, that they didn't move the way that I moved, I think. For South Asians in general in this community, like for queer and trans people, families of origin can be so complex and so difficult kind of to bring along in that journey, but that it's okay that, you know, like you're saying, like to not check them at the door just because they don't get it right away or to do the work slowly over time, you know, and, and have that be okay. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that I think I really, once I had the humility to really understand how much I still had to learn from my parents or family or community, even as I was learning what I thought was really sort of, you know, cutting edge or radical politics and organizing Mm -hmm. was that like my community is organized. (laughs) I mean, if you, you know, there was a, there was this huge tsunami in 2004 and it, it wrecked huge parts of the Island and so many people. I mean, I think everyone that, that we knew here knew either knew somebody or knew someone who knew someone Mm -hmm. who lost something in that, right. Often, Mm -hmm. often people, like there were so many, there were so many people that were really deeply impacted by that. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching my community organize and watching folks raise money, watching folks figure out community support for people, making sure that people weren't alone, making sure that people were actually able to get resources, trying to create what resources weren't actually there, creating shelters, creating other things. And from here, right. And having right. the the connections both here to bring people together at the drop of a hat and having these connections back home to actually be able to move resources there and thinking like, Oh man, I, you know, like that, that I am lacking so much humility and not being able to understand this as incredibly powerful organizing. And it doesn't have the same like analyses. It doesn't have the same words, you know, there's not necessarily, it definitely doesn't mean anything about how folks are able to handle and hold queer and trans people in their communities. Mm -hmm. And there is this incredible organizing happening that actually we have so much to learn from, or at least I feel like I have so much to learn from around what it means to actually support people as full people and mobilize and move when the time comes to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's inspiring to watch. And like you said, I think for me also joining the activist community, it was so much, so humbling to also look at at those that had already been organizing for years. Like there was this idea I had in my head that like, we were like breaking ground and it took me like a second to be like, holy <laughs> shit, you know, these people have been doing work for years and years and years. These organizations like Satrang, like Tricone have been around for decades, you know, and they've, they've put in work and how do we honor that work and then carry it forward into, into new challenges and new, new things to fight for, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and also, I, I mean, with Encapia and the work that you're doing and that you've done, what do you think are ways that folks can get involved? You know, not everyone has bandwidth or the, you know, the privilege or the ability to literally move, organize, protest, march. Sometimes it's not safe. Sometimes they're not able. What do you think has been your lesson on your journey of how can folks get involved? How can we mobilize communities where it's hard to get people out in numbers or visible or even have conversations? 
Yeah, that's a great question and something that I think about all the time. And I think one piece, and this isn't possible for everybody, but I think if and when it's possible is to join an organization. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be something that me, I mean, ideally join an organization that's local where you can meet in person with people and actually have these conversations and have these struggles face to face. And sometimes that's not possible. And I think there are also ways that people organize online. Yeah. But if it was to me, the first, the sort of most important piece of that is to be in struggle with other people. Absolutely. Because there is a limit to how much you can think about strategy and tactics and yeah. demands and needs right on your own. And there's something really different that happens when you are struggling that out with other people. And to find ways to have those struggles that actually allow for different viewpoints without throwing people away and really hash them out, like really figure out what do we actually need? How do we actually envision our lives and what does it take to get us there? And that might be a protest. It might not be. But like, I don't think that protest is the only thing that people can or should do. I think it's important, but not the only thing. But I do think that being in that struggle with other people is really important. Oh, absolutely. Like that community and that power of just numbers and of people like that get it. And like you said, reflect, you know, something about you or you're you're something you identify with. There's something so powerful that's not it's not something I can express in words, but I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think I also worry about and I wonder about how as a South Asian community at large, can we make these movements or these smaller movements that are happening in our smaller communities more accessible. Like I feel like there's there's so much transphobia and homophobia and Islamophobia and biphobia and ableism and, and countless others, you know. How do we as South Asians not only touch these topics in, in the greater spaces that maybe aren't already thinking about these things and make those spaces accessible for those that do want to be visible, for those that do want to organize and, and do their part, you know, in person or online or whatever it is. Like how do we how do we even start to do that and open that up to everyone? Because if we're not including everyone, then some of these conversations are moot, you know? And I think a lot about both class and caste as well. And yes. and, and we'll say that those are ways that both Ian and Kapia are learning and growing around. Sort of all, all of these conversations around accessibility. I, to me, a huge piece of it is actually how are we bringing new people in and where is it that we're meeting people? Mm-hmm. Like, are you only waiting for people to find you online? Are you only going to college campuses and meeting people who are in queer groups on campus? Are you, you know, how is it that you're actually expecting people to find you and to come in? Mm-hmm. And I think that can often really, really transform what a space looks like. And yeah. there is a piece of for sure around like training ourselves up so that even if right now there aren't any trans or GNC folks in this organization. When people come, you're ready to really welcome them in. And there's also a piece around like an organization is no matter how trained a group of cis folks are, an organization's never going to feel like it's really about trans liberation if you aren't bringing more trans folks in mm-hmm. and creating a space that people actually want to join. And so I think there's a couple of, you know, both getting ourselves trained up around how do we actually make sure that we're creating the spaces that we want and that we're prepared again to welcome folks in? But then also, where are you actually, how are you actually building your organization or your base or your movement? And who are you actually explicitly inviting in by yeah. how you do outreach, by how you build base? And if that, if that transforms, would it actually transform your organization and make it a lot more accessible? 
how do how do you do it? How does Encapia do it? How can other folks kind of learn to do it? What what would you say from your own experiences has taught you some of that? Oh man, I don't feel like we have it down. <laughs> I think a piece of it has been building really strong relationships. Mm. And a piece of it has been, you know, not only relying on on college campuses or other or on places where people are are already organized mm-hmm. to bring people in. And a piece of it has been building stronger relationships with community-based organizations and inviting queer and trans folks in those spaces to also to also come into Encapia if it feels good to them. Right. Yeah, but I think a huge piece has actually been acknowledging that there are a lot of ways that we need to grow and mm-hmm. then actually asking folks who are already plugged in, like, what would it look like for you to want to invite all of your people in? And I think it's really different. You know, I think part of why it's hard to answer that question is that it feels really different based on who you're thinking about yeah. or sort of what, you know, like who is not in the room. It's going to be really different to think about bringing more trans GNC folks in than it is to think about bringing more folks who are not upper caste, right? I mean, there are right. obviously people who who are in both of those identities, but the strategies around them may be different. And part of it is asking folks like, hey, I see that you're really involved and that you really love this space. And I want to be real, but like there are a lot of other TGNC folks in leadership right now. And what would it actually look like to bring those folks in? And I think we've seen really big shifts based on that. And a, a, yeah, pieces of it have been like recognizing where we're at and what the gaps are, right. um, actually doing outreach in different ways and creating space for folks to then actually lead and, and around things that may be that maybe we aren't actually ready to lead around and having the humility to say, like, I'm going to move move a little bit back and invite you to move a little bit up if you feel good about it. Definitely. I mean, that sounds also a lot harder. It sounds it sounds like that's the right direction, but that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like a very difficult process that can't that can't be easy. And I don't think a lot of organizations even think that way or, or try to examine the gaps or who they're not bringing, you know, who's not in the room or who, you know, that that sounds <laughs> sounds just really difficult, you know. Yeah. And I, again, would say that, like, we don't do it perfectly. And we know that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm always asking other people also what their what their practices are, what their outreach strategies are, and trying to learn from other groups that, you know, maybe don't do queer and trans organizing really well, but do other kinds of organizing really well. And trying to learn across movements, too, has been really helpful. Yeah, definitely. And like some of the stuff you've been involved in, I've been so proud of, you know, stuff like East Coast Solidarity Summer, Los Angeles Solidarity Summer, getting youth involved. I mean, some of these campaigns, not only looking at like, what are the gaps, but how are we kind of forging a path with the next generation or or building a movement that is across generations, across, you know, all the different divides and all the intersections that we may carry do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about some of the campaigns that Encapia is currently doing? Yeah. <laughs> the snarky thing that I want to say is yeah. that I've never been called old so many times in my life and it's oh, been great. No. Oh no. <laughs> um, oh no. We're not really old. Great to We're actually not old. <laughs> look, that's what I think. <laughs> it's been really great to to try to create a space where more young folks are actually excited about being involved with this organization. I think young folks are excited about being involved in community and in movement, but really, yeah, inviting folks to to help shape the spaces that we're creating. So we had a youth camp last year, mm-hmm. a queer trans API youth training camp called POP, People Over Pride, and it was so sweet. And it was incredible. I mean, you know, there is so much information online now that 
at least for me as a young person, like I didn't have, I, you know, I had access to the internet, but not, not the same. I did not, I was not able to find the same amount of knowledge there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so true. And it's incredible to really move back and say like, I actually don't know what that means. Like, can you tell me what that word means? Cause I haven't heard that. <laughs> and that's about queer identity. And I have no idea where that comes from and letting folks actually be the teachers and be the experts because they are in a lot of ways. Yeah. I always feel like, so I do feel old in those things when people are using like vernacular mm-hmm. language that I'm like, Oh my God, not only was it, is it amazing that this exists now, but also like, damn, I kind of wish that existed when I was first organizing or when I was young as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I think I cut you off, though, too, about maybe any like current and capia stuff that's going on, like Redefine Security or Queer Azadi. What are some campaigns that, that are involving the youth, that are involving groups and folks that may not have been included before and kind of building solidarity across intersections? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, at the moment, we're in sort of a campaign development process. So really trying to, we're having what we're calling queer and trans API movement convergences. So trying to see, you know, what are folks really feeling excitement and energy around? What are what are folks' needs in this moment? And where does it actually make sense, both locally and nationally, for Uncapi to play some kind of role? Mm-hmm. But yeah, over the last couple of years, we, we ran a campaign against the Department of Homeland Security, which... Is a huge target. Yes. <laughs> um, and a piece of that was actually just really wanting to transform the conversations within our own communities. And so we really asked folks, especially who, who we had strong relationships with, like, are there stories around policing and profiling and surveillance and criminalization that you want to share that don't get told, that people don't think of as API stories? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of folks that really said, you know, yeah, we actually do have all of these stories about being profiled, about being, you know, harassed by TSA, about being harassed by police, about being spied on, about having informants and infiltrators in our space. Mm. And really wanting to think about those as queer and trans issues and as API issues. Mm. And it was really incredible and also really heartbreaking to see how many stories folks shared once we actually had the space to do it. Yeah. And a lot of that was about letting South Asian folks lead, letting Muslim folks lead, letting working class folks lead. Like there were really different stories that came out um, depending on who we talked to. And that felt really clear. And that was a huge part of the intention around creating that, that space. And we ended up looking at particularly airports, which are a complicated site, but mm-hmm. had this this intersection of Islamophobia of a lot of obviously Muslim folks being being really harassed and made to feel unsafe and not being allowed to fly and and having really horrible experiences with TSA and a lot of trans folks dealing with a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with those new body scanners. And mm-hmm. so we decided that that was going to be a space that it really made sense to focus on both both with a concrete demand but also in a way that that broke open all these different stories and created the space for like some really deep relationship building even within our own base which it felt like was really important groundwork yeah definitely and it sounds it sounds almost like cathartic and a little healing even to just be able to give voice to those stories even you know yeah. I think it changed what people thought about as API issues. Mm. And a piece of this also was that I'd, I've been sort of, you know, watching 
and in different ways participating in sort of Asians or APIs for Black Lives work. Mm-hmm. And wanting to really think about, like, both, it feels super important that API folks think about our privileges, that Asian folks think about our privileges, and put our bodies on the line with our Black family, Black siblings. Mm-hmm. And it feels like another angle into that same work feels like thinking about who within our communities is the most profiled and criminalized, mm-hmm. and really bringing their liberation into the center. And so it was also thinking about a really different approach to some of the solidarity work that really asked people to find their own investment and to find their own harms without pretending that everything's the same, but to work from that place in a way that the goal was would really be a lot longer lasting. And I think I think it has been, you know, I think that work is still moving because it's really tied to people's lives and feels really urgent to folks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touched upon something that I would love to discuss a little bit with you, too, is is South Asian anti-blackness, you know, within these communities when you are organizing, when black and trans folks are being are being murdered by police and when you're doing this kind of work, how you find that solidarity, right, with South Asian folks that don't want to talk about it when it's so ingrained in, in some of these cultural aspects, you know, how do you build solidarity with movements that that are happening in the country but don't feel like, oh, you know, that's not happening to us or that's not happening in our communities or that has nothing to do with us. Why do we need to join the fight? I think that has been so amazing to watch just, you know, as as you, but also in Capia, like trying to break down those things and and bring in that solidarity across communities. Yeah, I think that's been really interesting work to be part of in a lot of ways. And to, I mean, yeah, I would also say that I've learned so much from being part of these different Asians or APIs for Black Lives groups and have learned so much from folks doing BLM organizing and leading that, especially in Madison. Like I really learned a lot about what it means to organize and to build power from that work and both feel a lot of gratitude to the Black leaders and movement folks that have really showed me some different ways of organizing, especially in sort of this moment in time. And have have been wanting to think about how we can do our solidarity work a little bit differently. And in that sense, learning from a lot of especially working class Southeast Asian and Muslim folks who have been doing that work. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's so true. And I, I, I think it, it must be so gratifying. What do you what do you would you say? Do you have any stories about what like, what has been one of the best moments of just the organizing that you've been a part of? Is there anything that stands out to you as as like a life changing or amazing story that you'd like to share? <laughs> yes. And I hope that these folks are not mad at me for sharing. This. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a, a disclaimer out. <laughs> Yeah, I'll check in with them. I think it's okay. There have been a couple of people that I met um, as young folks who are now, like, have been and are now leading some really incredible work. And that is probably the most, the most amazing thing for me about being part of this work. So, like, we're, and, and they're folks that I've been working with and have learned so much from, and it feels so... It feels so good to see to see folks move from having this relationship where it was very much like, oh, I'm learning from you. Oh, you're a mentor. You're like, okay, actually, I have things to teach you. Like, <laughs> there are ways that even as a young person, I know how to organize that maybe you don't. And I really love those moments where, th- where things kind of flip and feel like that's like that feels like the work. And so, yeah. you know, I think Shabab, Kadai, Amanda, like there are all of these folks that I think 
yeah, I've learned so much from and who I met as as young folks. And like those are the moments that make me stay in the work. Yeah. Right? Like, there are moments that I'm like, you know, it's been a great run and I'm kind of tired. <laughs> yeah. and maybe I'm going to take a break for a while. <laughs> and so then there are true. moments of watching these, watching these people just make really incredible decisions and, and, and lead really incredible work and shape really incredible work. I mean, like Kali and Amanda ran pop camp in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, with lots of other folks, but it was amazing to watch them facilitate that. Shabab's done so much work around both redefined security and queer azadi in ways that sometimes have been like, you know, that's not what I would do, but I'm going to trust you. Yeah. And it's great to learn. It's it's really great to learn from folks in that way and to feel that kind of rigidity of like mentor, mentee, kind of not dissolve necessarily, but to to feel it twist and reshape is is probably one of my favorite things about being in this work. That sounds that sounds pretty awesome. I also wonder for you, you touched upon a little bit, how do you in this political climate, but also in general, because you have been organizing for so long, how do you take care of yourself? I know you have Rain, your amazing pup, but do you, like, what, are, what are ways that you take care of yourself and, and as an organizer and help your community kind of take care of themselves as you're doing this work? That feels like such a live question in a lot of our movement spaces right now. Hmm. And I, I don't, I don't know. There's a way that organizing feels like healing to me and a way that being in this work is itself really healing. Like I know that there are pieces of me that have been really deeply touched and healed just by being in these communities. Mm-hmm. And there are ways that this work is also traumatizing. And I think that's real too. Yeah. I mean, personally, I've learned to carve out time for self-care and to hold that time as sort of strictly as I would anything else. Mm. So I play with a soccer team in LA that has values around gender justice. It has values around anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, and that, you know, really brings people into not just a way to play a sport, but also a way to think about how it is that we are interacting with each other on the field. And it's, easily the the best it's not perfect either but it's easily the best base that i've ever played sports in especially in a co-ed um you know like multiple gender situation that sounds awesome i don't even know how you would find something like that like that sounds amazing (laughs) it's great it's called footballistas and there's there's teams in different cities it's not just in la but i play twice a week, two to three times a week and have learned to like hold those times. So it does not matter if there's another meeting or another call. I will tell people, I'm so sorry, I have another commitment. And I won't always tell people what that is, but I will hold that with as much honor as I would a commitment that I've made to a friend or a commitment that I've made to a community or to a space or to a meeting or whatever it is to show up when I say that I'll show up. And that's been really important. And I think I used to think of that as something that was, you know, I could do it or I could not. Like, it's not work. It's just for fun. And when I don't actually get that space, I can tell how quickly my mental health struggles and how quickly I feel really stressed out and really anxious and don't have a release for it. So that's actually, you know, and I don't think it's going to be sports for everybody, but figuring out what are a couple of things that actually do keep you going and carving, not just waiting to see where you can fit that time into the week, because we all know that then it's the first thing to go, Mm -hmm. but really carving out times where no matter what, that time is for you and that time is to do the thing that will actually keep you going. Mm. And as you said, I do have my little magical healer pup, Rain, (laughs) who 
It's great. It's really, it feels really good to, to care for another being in this way and to also have this little being that cares for me. Yeah. Um, and that does in really physical ways take care of me because I also have some chronic health issues and she's really incredible at knowing more than I do about my own body mm. and at being able to tell me when something's going to happen in ways that I actually can't tell for myself. Meaning like I think she can smell or some in some other way she can identify when some of my flares are going to happen mm. before I'm like capable of doing it. Wow. And it's, yeah, both, you know, both the like having a pup, having a routine with the pup, yeah. but also feeling that kind of care is really, is really beautiful. That's amazing. That sounds, that sounds very beautiful. I'm, I'm happy that you have that. I think that, like you said, it is a very live question. I think that's something that I think about often is how do we, like I work in media, I work in news. I have had to in the last year, really like grow the divide between work and personal life. I used to be a news junkie watching, you know, like the daily show or Rachel Maddow or all these things. And to really divide, like when I'm on and I'm at work, I can read about news. I can read about politics, but when I'm, when I'm on my personal time, when I'm with family, you know, how do I, how do I separate that? Get off Twitter, you know, turn off the phone, you know, get that detachment a little bit even if it feels like for a second, I'm not going to be fully informed, you know, or or know what if something terrible happens, but giving myself the space to say, hey, it's okay if for like two days on a weekend, I'm, I'm detached from from what's happening. And that if something really major happens, I'll know, but I can't be tapped in all the time. And that's, that's been a way for me and a struggle for me in a lot of ways. But I think I'm starting to, to find my groove with being able to to draw that, that separation and be able to take care of myself in small ways. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I have also been limiting my social media time. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> and that is incredibly helpful. I don't have anything against social media, but it makes my it makes my brain feel like there's so much going on because it is so much information at once. <laughs> but then I'm just tired. Yeah. And I didn't used to feel that way about social media. But something, I don't know if it's the news cycle now. I don't know if it's just like what my brain is doing now, I'm not clear what shifted, but somehow (laughs) it's just too much information. It's so true. And then I feel like I've had all of those conversations. Like I feel like I've spoken with each person that I've read about online (laughs) and that's too much, too much. Maybe I'm becoming more of an introvert. I don't know. It's not clear to me what's happening, but limiting the social media has been incredibly helpful as well. Oh my God. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. As powerful of a tool as it can be in terms of organizing and connecting with folks, I think it does have its downsides. And I do think people are getting more and more aware of that and what that means for each individual. But yeah, it definitely feels like an uptake uh, in a lot of ways. But I, I would just wrap up with, with another question for you. You know, Looking back on your journey of organizing, how do you think it has helped you embrace the inter- all your intersectionalities and identities? And, and what would you say, two-part question, sorry. I know everyone's journey is different, but but what do you wish you had known? You know, what do you, what would you kind of advise young Sasha, you know, entering the organizing world? What do you think your journey has taught you thus far? Ah, such a hard question. I know, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think I would tell my younger self to be humble and to be patient. Mm. And that, I think I would tell my younger self, like, you have no idea the communities that you're going to find eventually. 
Mm. You won't find them for a while, but eventually you will find communities that can actually really hold all of you. And it'll happen later. I think it happened later for me than for a lot of people Mm. that I was around. Yeah. And I think I would tell my younger self and I would honestly tell my current self this too. It's just not Mm. shy away from the conflict, like to really be okay with having differences in strategy and having differences in tactics and having differences in even ideology and, and being willing to actually have some of those struggles, not all the time. I'm not talking about like find someone with a, someone with a make America great hat again, (laughs) you know, (laughs) cash it out. But within people that you actually want to build with, like be okay with having a lot of those hard disagreements and with really learning from them. Mm. And to find the time for joy, like the work doesn't go away. No matter how hard you work, like, <laughs> it's going to be a long-term struggle and to think a little bit more about what it looks like to do this work for the long haul. So don't take on 18 projects at once. Say mm. no to some things. Yeah. And... <laughs> Find the things that really bring you joy outside of the work, even when the work brings you joy and demand the time for those from yourself and for yourself. That's that sounds amazing. That's very wise of you. (laughs) That's all the questions I have. Is there anything else that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so. I just want to say thanks for for creating the space, for inviting me to be part of it. And like I was saying earlier, I'm really excited to have this podcast to listen to while spending hours in LA traffic. (laughs) I'm really excited to hear the voices of all of these amazing queer and trans brown folks, South Asian folks. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're queer. We're awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Is there a way that folks can either connect with you or connect with Encapia if they want to either find a local organization or find out more about uh, Encapia in general? Yeah, totally. So it's N-Q-A-P-I-A. And you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. I think maybe even on Snapchat, though I would not be the one to ask about that. (laughs) I'm not sure. Okay, cool, cool. No, that's Um, good. And you can find me probably via email is the best. And it's just Sasha, S-A-S-H-A at Encapia.org. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for creating this space. I'm so excited to hear all of it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening.